My world had convinced me that I was bad. No one could convince me that my five-year-old was bad. She was five, and she was asking these questions. So Miriam is really the beginning of my quest to leave. I'm Gil Galanos, and welcome to Storymark, a show about leaders, the moments that made them, and the mark they leave. On today's show, fashion mogul, reality TV star, and author, Julia Hart. It's really hard to find someone as dynamic as Julia Hart. The star of the hit reality TV show, My Unorthodox Life, Julia is an ambitious woman who leads in both business and pleasure. Yes, Julia quickly rose to the top of the hyper-competitive fashion world, eventually co-owning and running the talent agency Elite World Group. But it's where she came from that makes this accomplishment all the more impressive. Julia was raised Haredi, which means ultra-Orthodox, a strict interpretation of Judaism that shuns the modern world. Living in Muncie, New York, Julia wore long sleeves, wigs, and skirts, in stark contrast with her passion for fashion. But at a certain point, which she outlines in her new book, Brazen, enough was enough. And this is what impresses me the most about her, that Julia learned to take charge of her own life. And just a note for listeners, in this episode, Hart speaks openly about her experience with suicidal thoughts. Julia was born in Russia to militant communist parents. They eventually became disillusioned with communism and went searching for another ism. They landed on Judaism. Her father was arrested for religious practice, which led them to escape Russia. They jumped from one internment camp to another and ended up in Italy. Until that point, Julia's whole life had been gray. The Soviet architecture, the cold weather, the Eastern European food. In Italy, suddenly color appeared. The ambience, the pizza, the red cherry tomatoes. And it was here, in a Roman camp, where I bought my actually I didn't buy my first handbook. I was given my first handbag by I guess my first boyfriend. <laughs> so this little kid who was a little older than I was, he would do odd jobs around the internment camp and he collected all this money and bought me a handbag. Huh. And you were how old? Three and a half, four. Oh, wow. <laughs> I was very flirty. <laughs> But anyway, so he gets me this handbag, and I kept that handbag all the way through my 30s. But somewhere it got lost. But until that day, that handbag had traveled with me everywhere for over 30 years. From there, our profile was sent to Jewish communities all over America, and then a Jewish community had to adopt us. And it was Texas because both my parents ended up working for IBM on the first PC. We were the first Russian family in the entire state of Texas. We're talking 1975. Huh. Wow. This is pre-Gorbachev, pre-Pierestroik of Russians did not come to this country. And that's how, at five years of age, I came from Russia to Austin, Texas. Those first few years in this country were amazing. I led a very typical American dream kind of life. I went to this amazing private school. Of course, I was the only Jew. There was huh. one Jew and one black. And everybody else was white, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant. 
And it was a big drama for me to get in there because they came up with this idea to make a statewide test. And their idea was, oh, well, you know, white kids got a better education, so they'll do better. And I'm walking into this country. I've been here for a year and I'm supposed to take this test. And I write in my book that I got one of the highest marks only because I'm scared to write what my parents actually told me, which is that I got the highest mark in the state of Texas. There's no way for me to confirm it. So I just write one of just in case no one calls me a liar. <laughs> because of that, I came into the sights of this very famous Texas financier who had a daughter my age. He reached out to us. He tells us about this private school and his daughter went there and he had gone there and, you know, he was on the board. He thinks, you know, look, your daughter's obviously not stupid. Let's get her here. And they tell him, no, we've kept Jews out this entire time. We're not going to let any Jews in. We don't care how smart she is. And this man refused to give up, said, this is outrageous. I am going to pull all my funding if the school is anti-Semitic. And they made a deal that I would take an IQ test. And if I got over genius level, they would have to let me in. And so that's what happened. And so I go to this extraordinary private school where we make rockets and we're learning logarithms by fourth grade. And we, I learned how to speed read. I mean, an unbelievable education. And I love to learn. I am a, an eternal student. I had friends and I rode horses. I mean, it was an amazing childhood. And then, when I turn nine, my parents start becoming Haredi, religious. And that's when the shit hits the fan, <laughs> basically. And my life, as I know it, becomes completely transformed. Wow. And it was no more cartoons on Saturday, no more dancing with your friends, no more eating with your friends. Wow. And so slowly and slowly... My life became a little bit smaller, a little bit smaller, and a little bit smaller. At some point, I read that you taught yourself how to sew. Yes. So when I was in Muncie, now I'm already locked away in the 1800s, I was just obsessed with fashion. I was obsessed with fashion since my first handbag when I was four years old. But clothing in my world is meant to conceal to make yourself as unobtrusive, non-visible as humanly possible. The whole purpose of a woman is to be the quiet, meek, behind-the-scenes help to a man. The worst kind of woman is a woman who attracts male attention. Now, if you wear clothing that's fitted or colorful or sensual or beautiful in any way, you're going to stand out. That's a big no-no. So fashion in and of itself is bad. I knew I wasn't supposed to like it, and I couldn't help myself. I couldn't stop. So I taught myself how to sew. I taught myself how to make patterns. I remember the first outfit I made, the silver-gray taffeta peplum dress. My parents wouldn't buy me a sewing machine because too much emphasis on fashion, so I sewed it by hand. And I'm going to this wedding, um, of course, the girl getting married was in 11th grade, and it's the first time I wear one of my own designs. And luckily, I bring thread and needle with me because in the middle of this wedding, my dress starts to fall apart. <laughs> and so, like, seams are coming off, and, you know, I'm, like, constantly running to the bathroom and re-sewing myself back together. But it still felt so good to wear something that I had designed and created. That's fascinating. So you graduated from high school and you went to a seminary in Israel. 
How was the experience in Israel? Was any of that your choice? You know, in my world, you have two options. When you graduate high school, it's either seminary or marriage. So I was trying to avoid the marriage thing as long as humanly possible. So I said, okay, I'll go to seminary. Of course, I wanted to go to seminary in Israel. I'd read about Israel. It's such a huge part of our culture. Also, it was really far away from my family, <laughs> which sounded wonderful. In my world, there's the Stanford of seminaries, right? And it was called Bet Yaakov Yerushalayim, BJJ. And I desperately wanted to go there because you had a much better chance of getting a good shiduch, right? A good mm-hmm. match. Yeah. So, What about academic achievements? Which, for women, yeah. academic achievements, what do they need? What do you need an academic achievement for to have babies? In fact, I was told, Julia, don't talk on dates because the man will realize how intelligent you are and you're not going to get married. Hmm. It's, are you obedient? Are you tzniut? Are you modest? Are you meek, mild, quiet, shy? Those are the things people look for in a wife. They don't give a flying fuck whether you're intellectual or not. In fact, that's a negative, not a positive. Now, you have to understand, my Israel experience was not what a normal person going to Israel would experience. I wasn't allowed to go on certain streets because there were boys on that. And didn't you? I didn't. I was the world's biggest goody-goody. Never got in trouble for anything other than the way I dressed Or being too outspoken, asking too many questions. But doing anything what in the outside world would be considered naughty. You know, I did kiss a guy when I was in Muncie, but we're not going to talk about that now. (laughs) So I may have done a few naughty things, but, you know, predominantly I was a giant goody-goody. And so when I went to BJJ, when you walk in to seminary, the principal there, I'll never forget it as long as I live, said, people claim that you come to the seminary and we brainwash you. Well, whose brain doesn't need a little washing? Openly admitting the purpose of this place is to brainwash you and to make you believe that as a woman, you have one purpose in life and there's only one kind of woman that God could love. And that's how I was brought up, to believe exactly that. When you were there, were you happy? Were you fulfilled? I think my biggest problem was still not fitting in. Meaning, trying so hard to be like everyone else, to be okay with what I was being taught. And constantly fighting this battle in my mind of, I want to be good. I want to be a rabbi's wife. I want to be a woman that God can love. But on the flip side, having this fascination with studying and learning, not understanding why I can't learn the Talmud. I mean, honestly, like my favorite memories of Israel have nothing to do with school. My happy memories of Israel are really after seminary when I'm no longer religious. And then I find out about all the cool places in Israel (laughs) that I should have gone to. (laughs) You come back from Israel, you marry, four kids. Tell me a little bit about that process and especially the process of what was the moment where you felt like enough. As you said, come back from seminary like everyone else, start dating, get married. Ten pregnancies. Ten pregnancies. Ten pregnancies, four babies, and just becoming more and more unhappy, but feeling perpetually and continuously guilty for not being happy with what every other woman seemed happy with. There's this concept, Nushim Daitan Kalos, which means a woman's mind is light. A man every morning says, thank you, God, Shalohasani Isha, for not making me a woman. And so all of those things weighed very heavily on me. My issues that I have have never been with being Jewish. 
I love being a Jew. I don't think that the world I was brought up in has anything to do with Judaism. Any religion, when you go to the extreme, it's all the same bullshit. Judaism is kindness and community and living for something greater than yourself. But at the time, I thought that I was an intrinsically horrible human being and that God must hate me because no matter what I do, I can't be okay with my life. Fundamentalism is not logical, and deprogramming yourself is not a logical process. Right. You know, as the years went on, the misery became harder to contain. And even though I became much more modern Orthodox before I walked out the door, I still covered head to toe, but my clothes were much tighter on me. But I couldn't leave. I was too afraid. It just seemed too impossible. Like, what was I going to do? Who would know me? How would I survive? But I couldn't live the life I had anymore. So my original plan was to kill myself. I wanted to die. It just didn't feel like life was worth living. I had a full nine months where I tried to figure out different ways to kill myself. Okay, well, if I take pills, where do I get pills from? What kind of pills? Like, I can't cut my wrists. What if one of my children sees me? Like, that will scar them for life. And then the other big problem with suicide, well, other than the obvious, is that your children will not get good shaduchim, right? They won't get good matches because their mother will be the crazy woman who killed herself. So then it hit me that the easiest way to kill myself would be to starve myself to death. That way, no one will even know I committed suicide. They'll just think I had an eating disorder. So I started starving myself. And you see, I'm not a big person to begin with, right? By the time I walked out the door, I was 73 pounds. I was literally a skeleton, very frightening looking. It was not good. And I probably would have died if it hadn't been for this teacher accusing Miriam of cheating. My little Miriam, she was just this born nonconformist, refused to put any clothes on. Now, this is in a world where by the time you're three years old, you have to be covered head to toe. My daughter wouldn't wear underwear. There's a bit of a problem. And when she hit around five, she wanted to play sports. She was constantly told, no, this is not sneeut. No, that's not sneeut. And she's like, well, what does that mean? And her teachers and my husband would say, well, a man might see you and have bad thoughts and you'll cause him to sin. And so you can't do X. So a man shouldn't sin. Now, what kind of man gets turned on by a five-year-old's knees? I don't want to talk about that for a minute. But regardless, my little five-year-old would say, but that doesn't make sense. Is he responsible for my sins? And I was like, yes. Wait a minute. She's right. And so this five-year-old is giving voice to all my questions. My world had convinced me that I was bad. No one could convince me that my five-year-old was bad. She was five, and she was asking these questions. So Miriam is really the beginning of my quest to leave. It took me almost 10 years till I walked out the door. I didn't ever think that I would be irreligious. I just didn't want to be fundamentalist. I wanted to be modern Orthodox. I wanted to wear shorts and tank tops and still keep kosher and Shabbat and all of that. So that was the original plan. And that was already, <gasps> I mean, taking off your wig, like, it's, you know, you might as well. I mean, I had sex with people, with a complete stranger, with my wig on. That's how scared I was to take my wig off. 
If you break things down into very manageable chunks, people get used to one thing. And so that's what I did. And then the night before I left, uh, Miriam got accused of cheating. My brilliant little Miriam, who's never cheated on anything in her life because her answers were too good. And she's just a girl. It was the first time I'd seen my daughter cry. My daughter, like me, we're not criers. And I couldn't watch them destroy her anymore. I went completely crazy. Now, you have to understand, this is a woman who was always calm, you know, well-behaved, didn't say or do anything inappropriate. And then all of a sudden, Tuesday morning, I'm literally throwing shoes and screaming on the top of my... Acting like a complete lunatic as I'm packing. Literally walk out, no idea where I'm going because I hadn't really planned it. It was just like, I'm out. And I don't really remember much of that first night except thinking to myself, there's no going back. This is my path now. Wherever it's going to lead me, it's going to lead me, but I'm not going back. Even though I went back physically. <laughs> Here, in my mind, there was no going back. left the ultra-orthodox world and you start your shoe company. <laughs> Sounds crazy. It what? is crazy. <laughs> like, where did you have the confidence, connections, money? Well, I had no connections and money, you know, my first investor I met at a restaurant. My second investor I met in an airplane. You know, I was a 24-hour full-on PR marketing machine by myself. <laughs> of yourself. Uh, uh, yeah, exactly, of my own company. I was really a one-woman show, and I think in terms of confidence, it's not just confidence, it's confidence and ignorance. It's really hard for people to imagine. It is time travel. I'd never been on a date. I'd never been to a bar. I'd never been to a club. I'd never become friends with a non-Jew. I didn't know anything. I knew no one, and nobody knew me. I didn't exist in the outside world. It's almost an impossible thing to do. Hmm. The confidence came from, hey, I've just time traveled 200 years into the future. So if I can time travel, I can start a shoe company. Like, they both seemed equally ridiculous. Now, I didn't realize just how ridiculous starting a shoe brand without ever having gone to school, knowing a single person in the fashion industry, knowing nothing about production, marketing, merchandising, PR, logistics, distribution. I mean, I knew nothing about anything. But I didn't realize how much I didn't know. And so I just said, figure it out as I go along. And I've been doing that ever since. <laughs> Why shoe company? Well, number one, I'm very small. Five feet and half an inch. Very proud of that half an inch. <laughs> and also, I'm a size four shoe. Do you know how much fun it is trying to buy a size four shoe? It's almost impossible. And even though in my community, five-inch heels are a big no-no, it's the one thing no one could convince me to stop doing because I would say, show me a law. Show me where it says I can't wear high heel shoes. But high heels are torturously uncomfortable. They're painful. And my idea was, I love high heel shoes so hard for me to find them. I'm going to create a pair of high-heeled shoes that are comfortable. I'm going to eradicate this concept of suffering for beauty. I can't sell something to women that will hurt women. That's not right. That's really the reason I started with shoes. I mean, it was successful, right? Oh, and yeah. 
So I started in 2013. Within the first year, we were being sold in 17 countries. Hmm. By 2015, I had a co-branding with La Perla, which had 127 points of sale around the world. Wow. So La Perla is high-end lingerie brand. Well, that's and, right. Uh, that's why <laughs> long sleeves to lingerie. So here's a woman who was covered head to toe her whole life and is now making the wispiest, tiniest little nothings. This is unbelievable. You come outside the industry with practically no experience, no knowledge, and then you change the industry. Where did that come Because, from? Because, you know, I didn't care about how things were done. I was so sick of being told how things were done. What I'd learned from leaving my community, that just because something is done in a certain way, doesn't mean it's how it should be done. And I'm allergic to experts. So when someone tells me, oh, Julia, I've been in this industry for 30 years, and blah, it's like, blah, 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 blah. Don't hear it, don't care, not interested. All I see is how something can be done. And so my mind isn't trapped in what is. My mind sees what could be. Fast forward, you become the CEO of Elite World Group. So How did you get yourself in that position? Yeah, basically, I'm not just a CEO, I'm also co-owner, right? I own 50% of the company. I took it over really under duress, I'll tell you the truth, because I didn't want to take it. I didn't want to be the CEO because I didn't like the industry. You know, the modeling industry, the way that it was when I took it over, was very similar to the world I came from on the flip side. In my world, women were covered for men. In this world, women were uncovered for men. But in the end, it's still women being told what to do by men and their attire, their appearance focused and directed towards men. And I hated that whole concept. But at the time, I was already married to Silvio, and he challenged me and said, Julia... You change the industry. You changed lingerie. You change shoes. Change this industry. I said, you know what? I will. And so that's what I decided to do. And so when I took over the company, I transformed it from a modeling agency into a talent as media conglomerate. What I realized is with the advent of social media, the talent is now the media because they have the audience. More people watch my talent pruning roses in their bushes Then watch any single television show on NBC. We have 2.4 billion viewers. Tell me one media company that has 2.4 billion in viewership. And we vastly expanded the type of people we represented because it's not about the runway. I don't care if you're a model or a deep sea diver. If you have an audience, I monetize it for you. I transform you into a brand. And so that's what we started doing. When I took over the company, Silvio had tried to sell it for around $70 million dollars prior to my taking over, no buyers. Two and a half years later, we are valued by Jeffrey's Bank at somewhere between $700 million and $1.1 billion dollars wow. in two and a half years through COVID. Not a bad track record. You must have done something right. Last year, you also launched My Unorthodox Life, a reality show. What was some of the motivation there? The idea of the show was really to showcase what I'm doing in my present, informed by my past. Meaning, everything I'm doing now, everything I've done since I've walked out, whether it's freeing women from suffering for clothing, or shifting the power dynamics so they're in control because they have the audience, it's always been about freedom. It's my goal to make people think, hey, this crazy woman at 43 years old 
without knowing anything or anyone could change her life to this extent, anyone can. What I've learned is if you want to change the world, you got to make a lot of noise. This show, it's me making a lot of noise. Recently, you published a book, Brazen. What was the purpose behind the book? What happened was I went to Hollywood to sell this concept. And I'm sitting there and I'm talking to one of the producers. And he tells me, well, tell me something about, like, where do you come from? Like, what's your story? And so I told him my story. He's like, Julia, go write a book. Immediately. <laughs> and so I was like, you know what? I probably should write a book. <laughs> and so I started writing this book in 2017. And because I was working 20-hour days at EWG, I did it on weekends when everyone else vacationed at 2 o'clock in the morning. And the idea for the book is the show doesn't talk about my past. It kind of hints. The book is the actual story. The book tells you what I lived through. how I escaped, the mess my life was when I walked out that door. You know, from the show, it seems very easy. She walked out the door. She started a shoe brand. It became successful. She became creative director of La Perla. And it's all like, wow, this woman just, you know, one thing after the other. But that's not how it happened. It's a mess. I made thousands of mistakes. I got taken advantage of in the most bizarre, ridiculous ways. Still being taken advantage of clearly today. Still a work in progress, obviously, but that is part of the journey. Part of the journey is messing up and making mistakes and not giving up. So you've seen from the book, I mean, I am extremely open and honest with all my errors. And I thought about that for a long time because it's fucking humiliating. There's things in those books I would never want anybody to know about me. But I realize that if the purpose of it is to help others, to not tell the truth would be a disservice to them. And you're paying a big price. Oh, I mean, God. Family-wise, I'm assuming, I know you're not in touch with most of your immediate family. Yeah. Is it worth it? I mean, it's a huge price I've paid. My extended family, my siblings don't speak to me. Uh, my parents don't speak to me. 90% of the, my community that I still love. I have no anger in my heart there. Because, again, it's the laws that are the problem, not the people. And, of course, you know, being a celebrity, being in the public eye, people hate you by definition just because you are. And what I keep on reminding myself of is the suffragettes. And I think about all the women who have come before me who have demanded laws to be changed, who have fought for women's freedom. Bad things weren't just written about them in newspapers. They were arrested. They were imprisoned. They were beaten. So I figure, okay, I'm just going to consider myself lucky. So, you know, getting yelled at in the press, not so bad. I'll have to learn how to deal with it. So, look, it's a lonely place to be. Being an arbiter of change, being the person who always walks into an industry and messes with the status quo, people don't like that. But what I keep telling myself is I'm doing something right. You mentioned before that you don't cry. Where did that come from? Are you afraid sharing vulnerabilities? So there was a particular incident. It's in the book. It was after my bat mitzvah. I'm like 12 or 13 years old. Shabbos for me was a very work-filled 24 hours. At 6 in the morning, I would wake up and I would feed all the kids, dress all the kids, prepare the Shabbos meal, set the Shabbos table. Then I would serve. 
And then I would clean up the Shabbos table. Then I would take the kids for a walk, change their diapers, put them to bed. And that's the day that you're supposed to rest. No, that's my, yeah, the day of rest. <laughs> Love the day of rest. And so by the end of Shabbos, I'm exhausted and the pile of dishes is through the roof because you can't wash dishes on Shabbat. So then it's washing all the dishes and then washing all the floors. So one Saturday night, close to 11 o'clock at night, and don't forget, I'm a kid, and I'm on the floor, literally washing, and my mother comes downstairs, and she looks around the kitchen. She finds this tiny spot under the oven door that I had missed. And instead of saying thank you, or wow, you took care of the kids the whole Shabbos, or you served and you cooked and now you've cleaned and it's 11 o'clock at night, she said, why can't you ever do anything right? I remember that moment saying to myself, people can hurt you, they can wound you and make you feel very small, but your reaction is yours. And so at that moment, I made myself a promise no one would ever see me cry. I would cry in private, not in public, ever. Honestly, it's only recently that I gave myself permission to cry publicly. You'll see it all over the show! (laughs) (laughs) Now I'd like to ask you a few questions that we ask each of our guests. Go for it. What is the one thing that most people get absolutely wrong about you? I'm actually an introvert. Introvert. I know. Are you sure? I know. You don't believe me. Nobody believes me. My favorite thing to do is to be at home in my pajamas reading a book. I hate parties. I hate clubs. I go to the events because it's part of my job. Everything I do is because of my mission. But it's really against my nature. What are you most optimistic about? I'm most optimistic that although a lie can get halfway around the world before truth has time to put its pants on... In the end, the truth prevails. And that if you work hard and you're an honest and honorable person, in the end, that will come out. And finally, what's one piece of advice that you wish that someone would have given you at the start of your journey? Run! (laughs) (laughs) Tell me more. Don't wait 25 years. Go! So many of the impediments that we have in our lives are in our own minds. That's really my message to people. Get out of your head. Put that first foot forward. Just go. Go. Doesn't matter if you don't know where you're going to or how you're going to get there. Right foot, left foot. Just go. Amen. Julia Hart, as a father of three girls, I really want to thank you for everything that you're doing and for your mission to empower women. And it was really great to have you on our show today. Thank you so much for having me on. Hopefully we'll do this again in Israel. You've been listening to Storymark. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. Also, consider signing up for the Storymark newsletter, where we'll keep you up to date about upcoming guests. Visit storymarkpodcast.org to sign up, and you can also follow us on Instagram, at Storymark. Storymark is brought to you by iTrek Studios. iTrek is a nonprofit that inspires tomorrow's leaders through peer-led week-long treks in Israel to experience its innovation, diversity, and complex reality firsthand. 
For more information, visit itrek.org. I'm your host, Gil Galanos. Our producer is Ellie Blyer, and associate producer is Rebecca Sebastian. Our editor is Zev Levi. Thanks for listening, and let's go out. See you next time.